All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 14th day of January, 2020. Before I talk about the theme of today's show and our guest today, let me remind you that the next uh, Metals Investor Forum is taking place this coming Friday and uh, Saturday, January 17 and 18, at the Rosewood Georgia Hotel in downtown Vancouver. I understand the event is actually sold out, but if you would like to attend anyway, go to the Metals Investor Forum website. Um, you can find it at jtaylormedia.com. Just click on that banner. Put your name on the waiting list. And uh, as it turns out, there are many times there are people that pre uh, that pre-sign that don't show up. So there's a chance, a good chance, I would suggest that. Uh, that you could still get in if you're uh, if you're interested if you're in the Vancouver area and want to go there. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this show. There's got a lot of uh, really some of my favorites there: uh, Great Bear, Irving Resources, Lion One, Klondike Gold, Radisson Mining Resources, and Sitka Gold. It's a company whose story you'll hear about in just a few minutes from now uh, in the second segment of today's show. It's always good to see radio show listeners and subscribers at this event. So if you're there. Please uh, search for me and say hello. I always appreciate meeting you face-to-face. As always, I want to remind you that I'm the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up uh, to that letter by going to miningstocks.com. Suggest you consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to chenpicks.com. And uh, also, uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel, and also encourage you to continue sending along your questions or whatever comments you have about the show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I also do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Without them, there would be no show. Sponsors for today's show, Irving Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Hannon Mentals, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Gatling Exploration, TriStar Gold Resources, and Lion One Metals. Regarding our sponsors, I should tell you that just this morning, Hannon Metals announced that Quinton Henning will be providing geological advice to that company. I can tell you in speaking with Dr. Henning and Robert Moriarty, who chose Hannon as his top one of his top picks for 2020, that both of those men are extremely bullish on Hannon Metals. Uh, for their based on their copper silver prospect in southern Peru, and of course we will be interviewing Hannon, a CEO, in the not too distant future. Also today, Sitka Gold, which was one of my own top picks for 2020, announced this morning a significant expansion of its Yukon property. Um, in the um, second segment of today's show, we'll be talking to Corwin Co. of Sitka 
Uh, he'll uh, tell us about the company's very exciting prospects. It's really a company that I'm watching very carefully and one that I've top picked as one of my top picks because of its minuscule market cap and not one but three very exciting exploration properties. That is, is uh, we'll be drilling this year. In fact, the first of those three, uh, the drills are already turning on, and we should be getting some, uh, some drill results, I understand, in the not-too-distant future. I've titled today's show, David Rosenberg on Stocks, Bonds, Commodities, and Gold for 2020. David, as I just said, uh, Cora and Co. will be with me uh, in the second segment. David Rosenberg joins us uh, for the first time as well. And in just a minute or two, I'll have John Rubino, a well-known, uh, a well-known person in this show. He'll be giving his thoughts about the markets this year. If you've been a frequent viewer of mainstream cable networks, well, uh, networks like Bloomberg or CNBC, you will likely know David Rosenberg. He, is, he has always been one of the most entertaining and provocative mainstream economists in Canada and uh, the U.S., but now he is going uh, out on his own. He started his own firm. Why so? Well, in answering that question, David has said, and I quote, look, I'm at the stage of my career where I want to devote more time to what my passion is. My passion is research. My passion is writing. My passion is speaking. All the above and connecting the dots between what's happening in the broad economy and formulating a cogent and coherent investment strategy, end of quote. Well, we'll ask David to share his views as to which markets he believes should perform well in 2020 and which ones you may want to stay away from. And I also hope to uh, run the main views of Michael Oliver and Alistair McLeod by David. Uh, in the event uh, you're not familiar with those views, both those gentlemen think that we are heading for a weaker dollar and a stronger commodities market. And uh, in the not-too-distant future, likely interest rate increases, not decreases. Uh, we've been accustomed to seeing lower and lower rates forever, it seems, even to the point of negative rates uh, those two gentlemen think, uh, taking the contrary in view, they think that's, uh, that that's likely to change in 2020. I continue to see 2020 as a very exciting year for the junior exploration stocks. And as I just noted, one of my two top picks, Sitka Gold, uh, will be with me. We'll be talking to them in just a couple of minutes about their three properties and uh, why I think, really why I think you should really take a look at Sitka Gold and uh, Corwin Co., uh, we'll explain in detail. Um, but right now, I'm really happy to tell you that John Rubino is with me again. Thanks for joining me again, John. Hey, Jay. Good to talk to you. Always good to have you with us. Uh, just really quickly, what do you think about this thesis that, uh, you know, Michael Oliver, with his technical analysis, uh, says quite clearly that as of the end of December, uh, he sees the dollar entering a bear and commodities as measured by the Bloomberg Commodity Index. He's not talking about one or two commodities. He's talking about the entire commodity complex entering into a bull market. And he thinks that will create some inflation, which then is likely to cause interest rates to rise no matter what the Fed does. Well, that's a pretty contrarian viewpoint, I must say. But what are your thoughts about, about that? How would you respond to them? And, of course, Alistair has his own fundamental reasons for believing the same thing. But what what are your thoughts? Well, when first of all, when we talk about the dollar being strong or weak, we have to remember that that's usually um, 
a, a measurement between currencies. In other words, the right. dollar is strong versus the euro or the yen or whatever. Right. Um, and the, the most important thing to understand about these fiat currencies is that they're all getting weaker. They're just getting weaker at differing rates. Yeah. So sometimes the dollar is quote unquote strong because it's going down more slowly than the euro and the yen. And then sometimes it's the other way around. Last few years, it's been the other way around. The dollar has been relatively strong. Uh, even though it's been declining in value, it's been doing so at a, a slower rate than the euro in the end. So the dollar went up versus those other currencies. Um, and it, it part of that was because we had tighter monetary policy than the rest right. of the world. We actually had a central bank that was increasing interest rates in 2018. Right. But the, the stock market um, did a flash crash in December 2018 and, and showed the Fed that it's not possible to raise interest rates. So now the U.S. Fed is back in easing mode, or at least has been, uh, which means all the big central banks are kind of on the same page now. They're all easing. And since the dollar had uh, had gotten very strong relative to the other currencies in the last couple of years, um, it's reasonable to think that it goes back down a bit relative to those other currencies because our monetary policy is no longer relatively extremely tight compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's easy to see the dollar falling compared to other currencies in the next yeah. few years. And you know, one of the reasons why gold doesn't seem to be rocking to Americans is because of the strong dollar that has uh, kept gold from going up the way it would normally go up with interest rates as low as they are around the world and easy money and everything. You know, gold mm -hmm. is, is at record levels versus most other major currencies. Mm -hmm. But the U.S., it's way off its its previous record high. So if the dollar is going to go down relative, relative to, to other, other currencies, currencies yeah. you, you would think that gold then, in U.S. dollar terms, would go up um, and, and trade the way it has against those other currencies. So we could see a, a, a record high in gold just because the dollar drops by um, you know 10 or 15% versus the euro in the end in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's a, a really good story for gold mm -hmm. against a background that is great for precious metals in general because all of these currencies are being inflated away um, at an accelerating rate now. You know, everybody's easing. All the big governments are running big deficits. So everything is set up for a... Um, you know, kind of a currency crisis, but a rolling currency crisis, it looks mm -hmm. like, where the um, the decline of these fiat currencies starts to accelerate. Mm -hmm. And that causes disruptions in the market, but it also causes a ton of money to flow into real assets. So I, well, I think the thesis that you sketched out to begin with is is very, very possible in the next few years. Well, certainly, since the commodities across the world are, by and large, measured in dollars, a weaker dollar than would stand to suggest higher prices denominated in dollars, right, for commodities. Yeah, yeah. Anything that's denominated in the dollar goes up if the dollar goes down. Yeah. So that could be true of oil. Uh, it could be true of a lot of industrial commodities. Certainly yeah. true in terms of precious metals, um, yeah. and especially for people in the U.S., because we'll see a, an exaggerated impact when it's our currency that's falling. Well, you know, Alistair then, uh, and also Michael, Michael's work suggests that we're not far away from a turn in interest rates uh, with a weaker dollar and, uh, you know, and a shortage of funding for U.S. Treasuries. That I think I saw somewhere that 90% of new Treasury borrowings in the last quarter of the year had to come from the Federal Reserve, had to, had to purchase that. If that, if that number is correct, I'm not sure. But from what I'm reading is 
the borrowing needs of the U.S. Treasury is just growing dramatically at the same time that the Chinese and others are less willing uh, to, to continue supporting the U.S. Uh, the US Treasury. So um, do you think that it's possible? Do you see the possibility, and we're going to ask David Rosenberg this in the second half of today's show, for a rising interest rate environment, or do you think the Fed will be able to just hose the rate down forever, in, even into uh, negative rates, possibly? Well, we've got two titanic forces um, opposing each other out there. One is the, the natural impulse of people in, in an inflationary environment to demand higher interest rates. In other words, if you're going to lend money to the government, um, and the government is depreciating the value of the currency in which it pays you interest by three or four percent a year, then you want at least three or four percent interest, right? Because right. otherwise your your capital is shrinking rather than growing. So the markets will want higher interest rates. Central banks can't allow that to happen though. So they are going to aggressively try to lower interest rates or at, you know at least keep them where they are now, mm-hmm. especially in a recession. You know, in short-term interest rates usually fall five percentage points in a recession. Yeah, yeah. So if they start. <laughs> If they do that from here, then we're deeply into negative territory. Uh, And, you know, I wouldn't even venture a guess which of those forces wins in the short run. I think in the long run, the markets win because there's a limit to how much new currency you can create without destroying the value of your currency, you know, having it just fall off a cliff. So uh, that's out there somewhere. But in the meantime, you know, it's hard to say. Central banks are very powerful. Yeah, well, Alistair McLeod makes the point that if we go negative, if the U.S. dollar rates go negative, the dollar may be in trouble as a world's reserve currency because of uh, time preference. Time preference for gold, time preference for silver, for copper, for virtually everything that's tangible. People have a time preference. And why would you go negative if you can go and, uh, you know, buy gold and lend it in the markets at 2%, for example, positive numbers? That's just his thought. Uh, Just with about a minute left, uh, you mentioned right before we came on the show, uh, you see that the, the senior gold stocks, the producers, as being good dividend plays. Take 30 seconds and explain that to us, if yeah, you that, would, John. That's a really interesting thing that's happening in the gold market. Uh, you know, gold is up 15 20% yeah. over the past year. And that translates into a dramatic increase in cash flow for a lot of big miners. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got several things they want to do with that money. But one of the things that they seem to be doing is raising dividends. And Newmont just raised their dividend by like 79%. And, uh, and Yamana raised their dividend by 20% just towards the end of the year. here, uh, And that means that gold mining stocks are not just attractive because of the capital gains they generate, but they also generate income that's comparable to treasury bonds in some mm-hmm. cases now, mm-hmm. and might be higher at some point. So that brings in you know, income investors, right. which is a big new sector of the investment community that doesn't care about gold mining stocks now, but might once yields start mm-hmm. reaching one and a half, two and a half percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's a, a source of new capital for gold mining stocks, which could push right. the prices up. Well, and I would think that those gold mining stocks, uh, to the extent that they're uh, market caps rise, they'll be able then to raise money more efficiently and perhaps uh, invest in staying alive themselves because the big guys are producing faster than they're finding stuff, which leads us uh, on to the next uh, discussion right after our commercial break. Uh, with Sitka Gold Corp, they are in the position of, uh, of exploring uh, for one, actually three different properties we're going to be talking to Cor- Corwin Co. right after the, uh, the commercial break. John, we do have to uh, let it go at that because we're out of time for the first segment, but thank you so much for being with us again. 
and uh, Happy New Year to you for 2020, you and your family, and uh, we'll have you on again sometime in the near future. Great. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break. Don't go away. As I mentioned, uh, Corwin Co. will be with us um, to talk about Sitka Gold Corp. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5 kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time, Cor Co. Um, he is a professional geologist and mining engineering uh, technologist, and he has over 35 years of experience in the mining industry, working primarily in Arizona, Nevada, and the Yukon, and has put two mines into production in the past. He's also credited with the discovery of a 2 million ounce gold deposit. Cor has been a director and an officer of several successful public mining companies. He is currently focused on building uh, the shareholder value for Sitka Gold Corp., uh, which I'm very happy about because I am a shareholder of Sitka Gold Corp. And it's also a company that I've recommended in my newsletter. It's also, of course, a sponsor to the show. One of those properties that uh, the Sitka has uh, is in Arizona, another in Nevada, and a third in the Yukon. It's my understanding that all three of those projects are, are expected to be drilled this year. Uh, with the first one, the one in Arizona, already uh, having the drill turning on it. And it's also my understanding that we could be getting some uh, assay results in the not-too-distant future from that property as well. I know one of the things that I really liked, I mean, the, the company has a market cap of only about $5.2 million in U.S. money, selling at around $0.17 cents in U.S. funds. Uh, and the fact that they have not one but three properties, all of which have really good prospects, some, the probability is better uh, for success than others, but nonetheless, um, three properties and the market's almost giving it the company almost no value. 
uh, to speak of for uh, for a, for a company with with so many uh, with so many good assets. So, Cor, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Jay. I appreciate that uh, offer. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. And I should mention, I think it's I think uh, you made an announcement today that you've acquired some more ground up in your Yukon property. I think you're probably going to. Uh, you're going to have to pay for that in part with shares, is that right? And if if so, that that would give you something like 33 million shares out. That's all. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. All right. So that's. I mean, we're looking at a, just a very small market cap. And um, so let's talk about your properties because okay, a small market cap. If you got no value, so what? But I see uh, potentially a great deal of value here. And the one that you're operating on now is Burrow Creek. It's in uh, that's the one in Arizona. What can you tell us about that, and what do you hope to achieve with Burrow Creek this year? Okay, Jay. Well, Burrow Creek is our flagship property, and this property has a lot of history with me. It goes back to the 1980s when we were going to put that in production. That was going to be my third mine to go in production, and the price of gold tanked, and the company at the time shelved it, and. Uh, here we go. It's still it's still sitting there. So uh, Sitka has been able to acquire this property, and even though it was uh, drilled again in in 2008, and a, a historical resource exists on it, um, it never got mined again. And uh, and we're able to go in there where the last work done was a mobile metal ion survey over the projection of that vein to the south, where there's a veneer cover of uh, younger rock. And lo and behold, this this, uh, this uh, rock actually showed a golden omni trace of exactly where that burrow vein would be. Mm-hmm. So our, our project right now, our, our actual goal right now, is to test that projection for 1.3 kilometers, mm-hmm. as well as uh, test the historical resource area. And, uh, and we're in the middle of doing that. Um, as we speak, the drill is turning. And we have some, the first few holes in for assay, <clears throat> which uh, um, we dropped off just before the holiday season, and it, we expect those assays any day now. So that's okay. our flagship property. Mm-hmm. And uh, all right, do, do you expect uh, the early drill holes? Will they be confirming the historical numbers, or will you be stepping out uh, as um, that uh, extension? A couple of them are confirming the historical numbers, and a couple of them are filling in in an inferred area, or what would be called an inferred area at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, so uh, you haven't made, I mean, the, the, it's not public information, the historical numbers, I guess, so we don't really know. Um, I mean, you know, you. I mean, what what to expect here, but uh, it, it sounds to me like it's a, a low-risk drilling project in the sense that you, you've identified the structures, uh, the structure, and you know that part of it at least is mineralized. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the historical uh, information is available. It's actually in a in a technical report um, okay. on our website. Okay. And, on the uh, website, okay. Yeah, and Excellent. and also filed with CETA. But it's uh, it's it's it is low risk in the respect that uh, uh, we're pretty comfortable that the historical uh, drill hole intercepts are valid. Um, and again, um, I have to qualify that that they are historical. And uh, and that's part of what this program is going to do is 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 test out a bit. But the primary uh, focus for us is to see how big this deposit can be, this mineralization. And if it wasn't for the geochem that was done, uh, the last work done on the property, we wouldn't be nearly as excited about the potential 
of uh, of uh, of building that, uh, that a, re- a new resource on that property. And this is a near surface uh, deposit that could be mined from surface, or is it an underground project? And well, it's both. Uh, it's a wide vein uh, system, an epithermal system, low sulfidation um, that that uh, can it reaches up to forty feet wide on the surface of the the historical. Um, mineralized zone, and uh, but within that, there are components of very high-grade gold and silver, like over an ounce of gold and 20 ounces of silver, um, mineable widths of like uh, three feet. So, mm-hmm. so it, it it really bodes itself to both open pit and underground. And this is where mm-hmm. the blue sky is. We don't know how far this is going to go, and and this first pass will give us a good idea. Well, the first pass uh, could also get people excited in the shares. I, I suspect if the numbers come out, uh, uh, anything like uh, you might expect. Well, anyway, that's the first project. That's your flagship. But you've got two more we need to talk about and try to let people know a little bit about uh, today because this is just really an introduction of your story to our listeners. Uh, the Alpha Gold property uh, in Nevada is a Carlin-style uh, target, as I understand it. Talk to us a little bit about that. That's correct. It's right in the heart of the Carlin district. And uh, it's a structural interpretation that has shown where the Cortez trend would project to uh, uh, an anticline uh, called the Garden Valley anticline. And this anticline um, um, is the lower plate carbonates that intercept that area. And uh, the structural geologist that put this together um, feels that that uh, lower plate carbonate area where this intersection would happen is preserved and it's at a mineable depth and it needs to be tested. So this is a high-risk target, but it's also a very uh, rewarding target if, you, if it does exist. So, so we are going to uh, see about that. Probably um, the end of February is kind of what we're looking at there mm-hmm. to, to put and, the drill in there. Wow, that's uh, pretty soon then. Are these deep holes? Because a lot of times these Carlin targets tend to be quite deep. Yeah, it's it's estimated that these are going to be between twelve and fifteen hundred feet max to go through the fertile uh, target area, uh-huh. and, um, and uh, we're we're permitted for up to eleven drill holes. Uh, we've already got that from the BLM, um, so so we we could go as soon as we want. Basically, it's just more a matter of uh, organizing the logistics, uh, the drills, and and working with the weather because you don't want to end up going in there when it's uh, snowy and wet and wreck the roads and all that stuff. So that's sure. one of the reasons why we're focused on borough right now. Okay, so real quickly, you got the RC Gold property in the Yukon, and you just expanded. You, you put out an announcement today. You just expanded the uh, the size of that property. What are you looking for there? We're, our targets there are intrusion-rated gold deposits, which is what you're dealing with at uh, Victoria Gold Eagle Mine that just went in production and uh, Golden Predators Bird Creek Mine that's uh, slated for production, and mm-hmm. the AM Gold's uh, property um, also. These are, these are multi-million-ounce gold deposits that surround our ground, and they're mm-hmm. all in the Tombstone Gold Belt, which is the fertile area that you want to be in to look for these. So, so our property, the RC Gold property, was never uh, really explored too much because it was not accessible until the last couple of years, when a plaster miner cut a road through that whole area, a beautiful road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the work done there was mostly mapping and soil sampling that has outlined these six uh, drill targets, these uh, intrusion-related gold deposit targets, um, 
One of them is uh, two kilometers long and about a half a kilometer wide. So very uh, exciting to be able to look at a project right from the grassroots that's never had a drill on it and mm-hmm. going in there to test it. So the addition right. of, the, of the other property just expands our, uh, our holdings by 10 times. Wow, and, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's gone to, from 2,600 hectares to 33,000. Oh, wow. And there's right. also targets on there, like an amazing amount of work done, but only, drill, only 20 drill holes in that entire package. So, uh, so it's given us a real big um, play area to, to explore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I imagine that you have to wait until the weather warms up a little to start working up there. Yeah, it's preferable. <laughs> That's for sure. Right now, it's forty-five <laughs> below zero in, wow, in Dawson yeah. and, and and Mayo. But I have to, I've run projects up there in the middle of the winter in February at five thousand feet. So it depends on uh, on yeah. uh, you know what what you're looking for and how excited you are, and if you don't mind spending a few extra dollars. But uh, yeah, we'll be waiting till this till the summer. Okay. Sure. Well, you certainly have a lot going on with those three properties, and we would be looking for uh, ongoing, uh, I guess, news releases and assays and so forth. Um, just uh, real quickly, uh, you could you, your your management team essentially are you you're strictly an exploration company, I believe, or or could you do some production? We're an exploration company, yes. Right. Right. Exactly okay. We're right. Our, right. Our, now you also. Our, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead, Jay. No, you go ahead. Okay. Well, I just wanted to mention to you that, like, our focus, frankly, is pretty simple. It's to build shareholder value through the acquisition and development of uh, very fertile, highly prospective gold and silver properties that are in friendly mining jurisdictions, and 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 basically just check off three things, and that's the the jurisdictions have to be good, the logistics have to be good, like a road going through. And they got to be in favorable geological environments mm-hmm. where you're surrounded with uh, proven multi-million ounce deposits that are either in production or uh, being developed. Mm-hmm. So we see that in all three of these properties that we've got. Right. And that's, and that's why we think that a shareholder value can be systematically uh, built up. Well, sure, being, I sure believe that, yeah. Yeah, excellent. And and just one more thing, real quickly, because uh, we're just just about out of time here. With regard to uh, you have some copper targets too somewhere. Uh, tell us briefly about that. I mean, I know you're excited about it, but your your primary focus now are your three gold projects. But you also have some very interesting, uh, at least one very interesting copper target, right? Oh, absolutely. It isn't our focus right now, but we did do some work this summer, this past summer on it. Um, it's a huge 50,000 hectare uh, project up in uh, in the Arctic, out of uh, in Nunavut, in Canada, and it's close to tidewater, about 30 miles. And and we've got a new um, sedimentary hosted copper showing there that we call the copper leaf showing that that returned 13% copper and two ounces of silver in in grab samples. These these are pieces of rock that were spit up by the permafrost uh, melting and mm-hmm. and uh, and then freezing again. Oh, and okay. we ran a geophysics survey over that area, a gravity survey, um, and we extended that survey this summer, and it shows a, a, a gravity anomaly below these, these rocks on the surface that we're postulating could be copper mineralization 
and being uh, sedimentary host, it, um, it excites us because there could be substantial tonnage and, mm-hmm. uh, and found yeah. here. So, so, yeah, that's through uh, Sitka's subsidiary, Arctic Copper Corporation, which mm-hmm. we own 100%. All right. And uh, if this thing is big enough, you might look for a major or some large copper company to come in and, and spend some money to prove it up, if, if it's true. Oh, provable. absolutely. It's, it's more trying to find out how, 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 how big this anomaly is by geophysics before we can really uh, wrap around what kind of drill program would be an initial first phase there. And uh, it, it could be that you want to bring in one of the, one of the heavy guns to to test it, you know, if it's going to be uh, or, several million dollar right. projects. Uh, of course. Okay. So, okay, well, it was really exciting, uh, your, your gold and your copper project as well. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, those drill results, which should be coming out fairly soon on your first, uh, on your Arizona property. So, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Cor, for being with us, and uh, we'll look to t- talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Jay. We'll probably see you at the MIF. Absolutely. We'll see you in, uh, this weekend at the Metals Investor Forum. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away, though, because David Rosenberg will be with us for the first time. He'll be on our show. Um, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about the markets as we uh, start this new year. Don't go away. We'll be right back with David Rosenberg. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie Project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time David Rosenberg, who some consider to be Canada's most famous economist. Well, I'm old enough to remember another famous Canadian economist in the days of my youth. His name was John Kenneth Galbraith. 
Most of you uh, who certainly have watched TV, cable, cable TV, are aware of David Rosenberg. If you watch CNBC or Bloomberg or other uh, other channels, um, but it's still worth mentioning his background. For the past ten years, David was chief economist and strategist at Glus- Gluskin Chef, a, a Toronto-based wealth management firm, and prior to that. Uh, Chief North American Economist of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and from 2002 to 2009. And during that time, he was constantly ranked in the Institutional Investor All-Star Analyst Rankings for, econ- uh, for Economics. And prior to his move to New York in 2009, David was Chief Economist and Strategist at Merrill Lynch Canada, where he led his team to number one status for eight consecutive years uh, in the Brendan Woods survey of portfolio managers and CIOs. David is now the founder and president of Rosenberg Research and Associates. That's an independent financial markets and economic consulting firm launched just days ago at the start of this year. And David writes a daily column titled Breakfast with Dave, which is a distillation uh, of his economics and financial market insights and forecasts. And I'm really happy to tell you that, uh, at, at least for now, uh, you can sign up for a complimentary subscription to uh, Breakfast with Dave uh, by going to RosenbergResearch.com, RosenbergResearch.com. Thanks for joining me, David. Well, thanks for having me on, Jay. It's really good to have you. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to speak to you. Uh, first time in my life that I've spoken to you personally. I've seen, of course, uh, seen you on television many times. James Grant said of you, uh, quote, David Rosenberg's greatest attra- uh, attribute is not his mind as formidable a piece of analytical equipment as it is, nor is it his superlative forecasting record as enviable as that is. His greatest attribute is rather his heart. He he forms his views without fear and without favor, and he is unshakable when he thinks he has found the truth, which he so often does, end of quote. So, David, after working for quite a few years for major firms, you are now going it alone, Oftentimes, people pull away from working for larger firms so that they can be free to speak their minds. But as James Grant points out, you have been doing that even while under the roof of major firms. So what do you hope to accomplish now that you're on your own that you haven't been able to do uh, at places like Merrill Lynch and Gluskin Chef? Right. Well, uh, you know, before I get into that, uh, you brought up John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, who spoke (laughs) at my convocation at University of Toronto Oh. Uh, in 1983, uh, and I think I had a front row seat. I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, and I think his opening line was, um, you know, there are uh, a couple of types uh, of, uh, of economists or forecasters. There's uh, uh, those who don't know, uh, and then there's those who don't know they don't know. Uh-huh. And um, I suppose that if I could, I would have had uh, my favorite uh, Canadian economist, uh, you know, uh, write on my testimonials. But uh, without a Ouija board, that's going to be impossible. Uh, but Jim Grant, uh, I think, uh, hit the nail on the head, which is that uh, I have a, a tremendous degree of passion for the financial industry uh, and for taking the economic data points and uh, forming a cogent and coherent uh, investment strategy uh, out of them, really mm-hmm. taking uh, the macro uh, and then tying it into the micro. And uh, the bottom line is helping, out, helping investors make the best possible decisions that they can uh, with the economic skills um, that I've accumulated over the decades. Uh, you know, you talked about the, the previous employment, uh, and uh, look, it does feel great uh, to uh, uh, start my own business, uh, to staff up, uh, have a terrific team, 
um, but also not have the ball and chain uh, that economists typically have on Bay Street or Wall Street when they work at big institutions, mm-hmm. uh, when obviously, you know, you're doing your economic research, uh, but it's always somehow tied in uh, to how the firm uh, you're working at uh, is, is positioned. Uh, I mean, you can't mm-hmm. have it both ways. Uh, a, 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 an institution is not going to hire an economist that's going to go off the rails and talk about things that uh, either doesn't matter uh, to them, although it might matter to you, uh, or to forecast things that aren't consistent uh, with how uh, the people that run the shop want to take the business. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just saying that very generically, but um, it is. Uh, I do find that there is a dearth of, uh, of research out there that is independent in the sense that it's just basically not biased. Uh, not biased, in, and more importantly, doesn't have the perception uh, of being biased. So... I think unbiased research, uh, you know, and you're going to be right, you're going to be wrong. A lot of that comes down to timing. Uh, but really, uh, what's most important is to provide uh, thoughtful and unique research uh, that helps investors make decisions. I, I don't make the decisions for investors. I help them make their mm-hmm. own decisions. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the opportunity here. Uh, and I've been thinking about doing this for years. This is nothing new. People that know me know that it's been in my mind. Uh, for well, since I left Merrill ten years ago, uh, mm-hmm. and um, and the timing uh, was right, and I think especially now that there's just so much confusion out there uh, in the marketplace, uh, this massive disconnect between the real economy and the financial economy. I mean, I think that you would have uh, one of the most pronounced bull markets in risk assets of all time in the context of the weakest economic expansion of all time and mm-hmm. negative interest rates or zero interest rates and how do you do appropriate valuations. It's a very confusing time period out there and now I can devote 100% of my time uh, to helping out my clients and my subscribers uh, to uh, to wade through all this noise. Mm-hmm. Well, I can say that... Um in spite of the ball and chain, you've done a pretty good job, even when you were under the roof of some of those larger companies, of speaking your mind, as, as James Grant alluded to. And uh, for that reason, you've always been, you know, it's uh, when you when you would show up on a CNBC or someplace, it would be, I would take the mute button off uh, when I'm in my office to hear what you had to say. And it was because I knew that I wasn't going to get what I was getting from everybody else. So I'm, this is the reason I'm so honored to have you on the show. Uh, would like you to try to help us then to make some sense of what seems to be nonsense, uh, a stock market that doesn't seem to, that, that is constantly defying gravity. Um, <clears throat> the propaganda in the U.S., especially from the few networks that are not hostile to Donald Trump, like Fox, maybe there's another one or two somewhere, they maintain that the U.S. economy is strong. I mean, I, we hear it time and time and time again. Um, of course, David Stockman and others on this show don't agree with that. But can you share your views of just what do you see in the U.S. economy right now? And, you know, how much of a disconnect is there from that kind of pro-Trump propaganda to what you're seeing? Right. Well, look, I just want to come back to, before I get into that answer, just to say that, um, you know, I, I have always held my ground and I've always been true to my word uh, but, you know, it comes down sometimes, in answer just to your previous comment, that it's even mm-hmm. sometimes the perception uh, mm-hmm. that you're biased, even though you're not. 
mm-hmm. and so that's really what I'm talking about. I'll give you one example, uh, and then I'll get to the uh, answer to your question. Mm-hmm. When I turned bullish in 2011, 2012, and believe it or not, I was bullish right up to 2017. It's a public mm-hmm. matter, public record. I can't tell you that uh, all the all the stuff people were writing about me in the blogs. Uh, and in other reports that I threw in the towel on my bullish view on bonds and my bearish view on the economy uh, mm-hmm. because I was somehow pressured to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was never really pressured to do it. You know, again, it's always um, uh, about, uh, you know, ab- about really about the perception uh, as, opposed uh-huh. to, uh, uh, as opposed to the reality. Now, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on, uh, I would say that, yes, this is the... Uh, uh, certainly, one of the more uh, bizarre cycles, maybe the most bizarre cycle that uh, that I've seen, and and there's no chapter on this uh, in the uh, in the Benjamin uh, uh, Graham uh, classic on value investing uh, as yeah. to really what's dominating right now. Uh, you know, we've run some correlations and found that the statistical relationship, the cycle between uh, the stock market and the economy, is uh, is only seven percent. Uh, in any given cycle in the post World War II experience, uh, it's been anywhere from 30 to 70 percent. And mm. I've done this long enough to know that there's a um, a whole confluence of factors that influence the stock market. Uh, there's obviously the fundamentals. As an economist, uh, that's where you put the biggest premium on. Uh, but there's valuations, and there's liquidity, and there's momentum, and there's fund flows, and there's market positioning. And so you really have to take a very eclectic approach when you're looking mm-hmm. at uh, how you uh, assess uh, assets in general and the equity market in particular. But I will say, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, about the uh, stock market. I say you're probably better off talking to your electrician or your cab driver because uh, <laughs> the relationship with the economy has never been this weak. It's really been a tremendous uh, liquidity-driven uh, market. And uh, um, we saw that last year in particular, you know, there was maybe no GDP recession, but we had in the United States a four-quarter earnings recession, and the market still ripped by uh, by 30%. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that uh, really what's driving this thing uh, wasn't even so much the phase one trade deal. It's hard to really connect the dots between, you know, a uh, something that has to expand Chinese purchases of soybeans, which I guess is great for Midwest farmers in the United States, mm-hmm how you translate that to a four-point multiple expansion of the stock market, well, uh, I don't think that's quite possible. But things really shifted, actually, in early October, not around phase one, but when the Fed announced this de facto QE4 program of hoovering up the treasury bill market, uh, expanding its balance sheet by $100 billion per month. The reality is that the Fed is expanding its balance sheet now at a faster rate than it was during QE3. Wow. And if you're looking for the real power, what, what, is, what is the correlation between the Fed balance sheet and the stock market. Um, well, all cycle long, the past decade, since the Fed started QE, that relationship has been 70%. Remember wow. I said before, mm-hmm. the relationship with the economy is 7 Seven. And uh, <laughs> But since this, since this latest round in early October, the correlation's been 95%. So this is wow. all related to what the Fed is doing. When they say don't fight the Fed, they mean don't fight the Fed. Uh, mm-hmm. So this, uh, you know, Jay Powell... Uh, Titan policy in December 2018, uh, obviously regretted it, uh, did the Powell pivot, cut rates three times. People don't recognize that what the Fed has done with the balance sheet is even more powerful. Uh, what's happening is because uh, bank assets and bank credit is slowing down dramatically, uh, this excess liquidity is finding itself not in the real economy, but it's finding itself 
in the financial economy in the stock market. And that's really what the story here is. So this is a liquidity-driven stock market. Uh, I say these are markets you can rent, um, and you can rent them for quite a long time, actually. Um, but these, any market that is not backed by fundamentals, and we are in an earnings recession, uh, I think are markets you still have to be quite skeptical of. Mm-hmm. But what would stop it, David? What, <clears throat> I mean, what, would, what could stop this? Uh, it's a liquidity-driven thing, and the, the Fed can print infinite amounts of money, right? It can, why can't this well, game go on, and what, what in the world could stop it? Well, look, you, you have a, um, it's a very divided Fed. Mm-hmm. So when you read the last set of FOMC minutes that came out in December, uh, you're going to see that uh, there's um, the doves are the ones saying, oh, well, you know, well, core inflation is uh, so far below target. Uh, they focus on the core PC deflator because uh, the core CPI is actually above target, so we're rather convenient to focus on core PC <laughs> deflator. And so uh, they're, you know, they're consumed with low inflation, low inflation expectations, and uh I guess their big fear is if we slip into a deflationary environment, uh, the level of uh, outstanding debts in the public and private sector were so massive it would trigger uh, a destabilizing default cycle. Uh, that's one group. There's another group and a growing uh, vocal, I would say, minority that might turn into a majority uh, that is concerned about the financial instability uh, that's being created. You have financial instability in two directions. We certainly had financial instability when the trap door opened up underneath the stock market in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. of 2018. But, you right. know, there's meltdowns. Uh, melt-ups, well, people don't mind a melt-up. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> melt-ups are also, are also a source of financial instability, just uh, in a different direction. And mm-hmm. the Fed's talking more about that. So I think that it's a little foolhardy to extrapolate the current experience with the Fed's balance sheet, uh, how they've decided uh, through really uh, unsterilized intervention uh, in the uh, money market uh, to calm uh, the situation in the repo market where there's clear uh, collateral and uh, liquidity problems. Uh, and, um, you know, that would take a whole hour to explain that. But yes, um, the yes. Fed has been expanding its balance sheet. It's having a, a dramatic impact. And it's not really that much different. You know, look, Jay, we'd be having the same conversation in late 1999. You'd be saying, mm-hmm. as we had a melt-up, uh, and, of course, the Fed cut rates and, um and, and, and plug the system with incredible liquidity because of Y2K. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, starting January the 1st of 2000, the lights turned on, even in Japan. Uh, we didn't have a crisis. The Fed had stuffed the, liquidity, the, the markets with tremendous liquidity, uh, and then it stopped. And then we know what happened in the next few months. And, in fact, we know what happened in the next couple of years. And how mm-hmm. dangerous a game it would have been to have extrapolated the experience of December 1999 into the balance of 2000 uh, once the mm-hmm. Fed stopped the liquidity spigots. Mm-hmm. So that's the question is, um, is, you know, I guess you would say, well, my assumption is that the Fed is just going to keep on buying up the treasury bill market uh, to perpetuity. And if that's, if that's your view, uh, then knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, John Kenneth Galbraith before. I'll mention another economist, uh, which was uh, Ben uh, Ben, uh, Herb Stein, who was Ben Stein's Mm -hmm. father, who was Nixon's uh, chief economist back in the 70s, who famously said that anything that can't last forever, by definition, won't. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I said about these liquidity rallies. uh, We saw, he said, people have short memories. We saw what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018 when liquidity dries up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So right now it's your best friend. In a week, it, it could be your worst coward. And uh, that's prim- my primary concern is that this rally, this melt-up we're seeing right now, 
is not like uh, a 1980s bull market. This is not like a 1990s bull market where it's predicated mostly on productivity. This is premised on liquidity. This is as artificial as it gets. I'm not going to say that it's not happening, but it reminds mm-hmm. me of uh, Grigor Potemkin, who was the general for Catherine the Great in the 1700s, uh, who built fake cities for her. And I would mm-hmm. say that we have a bull market already. Right? The bull market is in financial engineering. Uh, and um, I don't see this as being anything more than a house of straw, which is why I have my concerns. No, it certainly is. Uh uh, have, has a lot to do with this redistribution of wealth that is uh, of concern to some politicians on the left down here. Whether or not they'll recognize the reasons for it is another issue. But, David, uh, just looking at your uh, at your publication this morning, um, Breakfast with Dave, it seems to me as you talk about the two different camps of Federal Reserve uh, officers there that uh, you would fall more into the dovish camp uh, because uh, you express concern about uh, declining inflation. And, and possible even deflation. Um, what are the chances of that happening? Well, I think that, I mean, I think the Fed will be on hold for the next while. Uh, I think that what's happened is that, I mean, the Fed had already cut interest rates, uh, you know, heading into October. The point I made before is that uh, by the beginning of October, uh, the 12-month total return in the S&P 500 was just over 1%. People tend to forget that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you finish the year up 30%. Well, what happened in early October was the Fed issued its uh, memorandum on uh, on what it was going to be doing in the intervention of the Treasury bill market and, and re-steepening the yield curve in the process mm-hmm. and dramatically expanding its balance sheet. And then look what happened on the stock market. So mm-hmm. uh, I think at some point the Fed is going to stop uh, the balance sheet expansion. Uh, my sense is that the economy is fun. The, the economy in the United States. I mean, you might call it the cleanest shirt in the laundry basket, uh, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's not soiled. I mean, the, the consumer mm-hmm. has hung hung in remarkably well, and the consumer is seventy percent of GDP. But the other thirty percent of GDP, which is housing and commercial construction and its exports and its capital spending, uh, is actually in a technical recession. Most people don't realize that we've had back to back quarters of negative growth in the 30% uh, of the economy called uh, the non-consumer GDP. And the mm-hmm. question really going forward is, uh, will the consumer play catch down to the rest of the economy, uh, or will the rest of the economy play catch up uh, to the consumer? And uh, uh, my experience in these matters tell me that the consumer is going to play catch down. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a classic um, NBER-defined recession, but I do think that growth is going to slow below potential uh, the unemployment rate is going to start to go up. It's already begun to stabilize. We already saw that squishy, soft employment number on Friday. Uh, there's mm-hmm. more of that to come based on my leading indicators. And so it might not be a classic recession, but it will feel like it. The Fed will be compelled to cut interest rates at that point. could be a second half of the year story. So when you say that I line up dovishly, it's not that I think that the Fed's going to continue to pump liquidity to cause an overinflated stock market to become even more excessively valued. I think this will come down to an economy that underperforms expectations, uh, an output gap uh, that um, that widens and creates uh, disinflationary and deflationary pressure. And mm-hmm. I think those are the fundamental factors that will cause the Fed to get back on the easing track. But it's not going to happen very quickly, but I expect that to be the story as 2020 uh, unfolds. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're just basically we're out of time. Real quickly, uh, Treasuries, good place to be then, it sounds to me. 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, treasuries remain a, a solid place to be. I think that um, inflation is going down uh, globally. Uh, I think that the, you want to be in the parts of the world where the yields are still positive and where there's still central bank potential to cut rates. Uh, the U.S. fits that bill. Uh, and uh, I think the economy is going to slow. So uh, I think at a, at a minimum you'll pick up your coupon, uh, but I do also think you'll pick up a capital gain. But there's also, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. There are Although I might not like the, um, you know, the equity market in aggregate, which means I would not exactly be going out right now and loading up on index funds, uh, mm-hmm. but there are parts of the market uh, that I do like. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe that the consumer will be trading down. I think that consumer staples might not be a bad place to be. In my report I put out today, I showed that even in recessions, uh, for example, drug retailing uh, typically uh, holds its own. I think that there's a bull market uh, in defense stocks uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, I think gold is a nice insurance policy. Uh, and um, and so there's a, you know, as I said before, uh, you don't have to like the overall market, but uh, right. there are needles in the haystack worth looking at. All right. Well, needles in the haystack, it's rosenbergresearch.com to find those needles in the haystack. As you said, David, you're not providing direct investment advice, but you're helping people understand the macro uh, and then from there, that they can hone in on the on the micro and figure out which markets are best to be in. Thank you so much for being with us, David. It's greatly appreciated. RosenbergResearch.com. Go there, folks, and you can sign up, at least for the now, for a complimentary subscription to uh, to Dave's uh, Breakfast with Dave. Thanks so much, Dave, for being with us today. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Uh, next week, we have uh, David McElvain. He's going to be with me, Alistair McLeod and Nick Appleyard of TriStar Gold. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling already underway at its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world now owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com. 